Well, good morning. It's good to be here. We are going to look this morning at Matthew 24, 34. And particularly, we're looking at that little phrase that's commonly translated this generation. Hopefully, everyone got a handout. But before we just dive right into the handout, let's just remind ourselves of the scriptural passage that we're going to be looking at. So in Matthew 24, 30 and 31, our Lord is speaking on the Mount of Olives, and He says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And then just a few lines later, beginning in verse 34, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So it's the tension between those two passages, really, that's behind our study this morning. Looking at the, the beginning of that handout, we'll alternate between reading some of the sections and skimming others. So don't be concerned. We'll try to get through this whole thing. But C.S. Lewis, the famous apologist, when he was looking at our verse from the perspective of a skeptic, he called it the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. And Lewis is correct that a quick or cursory read of the verse set inside of the Olivet Discourse seems to suggest that Jesus is solemnly promising to return within the lifetime of his listeners. If that phrase there that's translated this generation or hey genea aute is understood to set a specific time frame for Jesus's parousia or his appearing, and if that appearing did not come within the time frame, then the verse could be understood as a prophecy which did not come to pass as predicted. So do you understand the tension that Lewis is uh, referring to? For example, the skeptic Rimaris writes concerning this verse, as Christ unfortunately did not come in the clouds of heaven within the appointed time, nor even after many centuries had passed away, people try nowadays to remedy to the failure of the promise by giving to its words an artificial but very meager signification. So the interpretation that I'm going to argue for today, according to Ramaris, is artificial and meager. So you've been warned ahead of time, okay? <laughs> Similarly, Cumul asserts it's perfectly clear that this prediction of Jesus was not realized. It's therefore impossible to assert that Jesus was not mistaken about what he said. There's basically only three ways to explain the tension that Lewis saw in this verse. We could either argue that Jesus was wrong about the timing of his return. For example, just to cite another uh, more recent commentator, Luz argues that any interpretation of the phrase other than a reference to Jesus' contemporaries, is useless. And he concludes that Jesus was mistaken in his expectation. More recently, Scott McKnight, in discussing the parallel statement in Mark, he states, Jesus prophesied that God would wrap things up with one, within one generation. Some other writers have taken a, a second option. So Jesus wasn't wrong, but Matthew has just recorded the statement incorrectly. Matthew understood, or misunderstood, Matthew has made the mistake. And I give you there in footnote 8 some examples. But there is a, there is a significant majority of uh, writers, even within those who argue that this is a reference to temporal contemporaries, who still find a way to say that not Jesus or not even Matthew is mistaken in what he said. So therefore, these writers have taken a third path which says that, or that understanding Matthew 24, 34 to be a prediction of Jesus' physical return at a specific time is a mistake on the part of the interpreter. So underneath this approach, we could divide it out in three ways. First of all, some of them would argue, based on the structure of the discourse, 
that all these things, that phrase there, panta tauta, in verse 34, refers only to signs which precede the coming of the Son of Man and not to the parousia itself. So these writers would agree with Luz and McKnight and Davies and Allison that the parousia in 24 is Jesus' second coming, but they would argue that this return is not included in all these things, okay? So one option is to say when Jesus says that all these things will be completed, he's not including his second coming in all these things. It's a structural argument, and we can come back to that later. A second option would be to say, no, all these things does include the coming that we read in verses 30 through 31, that passage that we began with. But that coming that Jesus is referring to is not his second coming. It's actually his coming in judgment. So it should be understood as Christ's eschatological return to earth to consummate his kingdom instead of his coming in judgment in AD 70. They would argue it's the, la the latter, his coming in judgment in AD 70. So unlike the previous group of writers, these scholars include the coming of the Son of Man within the all things, but they define this arrival as something other than Christ's return. One final group of writers, among those who argue that this generation, or hegene aute, should be restricted to people living at the same time, suggests that the generation being referred to in verse 34 is an eschatological generation. So it's still a group of people who are living at the same time. It's still a group of contemporaries, but it's a group of future contemporaries. It's usually described as the people who see the signs begin will be the same people who also see Christ return. This is a common dispensational position, and you'll recognize some of the authors there in footnote 13. So thus, Matthew's All But Discourse is not intended to describe unique signs occurring in the first century, such as Jerusalem's fall in AD 70. Instead, the distinctive signs are eschatological events that only a future generation will see. I agree with this view regarding the terminus of this Ganea, but not with the beginning point proposed for it. Commentators do not widely hold this view, but it's plausible and it demonstrates the complexity involved in tracing the Olivet Discourse's argument. But I think there's actually a fourth way that's a better way. So Ganea is not a generation, but is instead some other group of people linked by a quality. So they have something in common, whether that's a family connection, whether that's a personality characteristic, whether it's a behavior, that's what groups them together. It's not necessarily their time. So we pick up there under another proposal. There is another way to understand the statement. This view has been argued for by a significant minority. So I'm admitting right off the bat that it's a minority, but I say it's a significant minority, okay? So there's been other people besides me through the centuries and can be put most simply this way. So here's my, my thesis that I'm gonna to try to argue for. Ganea, I'm deliberately trying to use Ganea instead of generation because ultimately I'm going to argue that generation is a mistranslation. But the word that's commonly translated Ganea is used, or sorry, is being used in Matthew 24, 34 to refer to a type of people. It's a qualitative use rather than people living at a specific time, a temporal use. So I'm going to make a distinction between a qualitative use and a, and a temporal use. A qualitative use can include temporal contemporaries, but it's not restricted to those contemporaries. The qualitative use is broader and includes people who share something in common besides a temporal place in history. So one of the, the objections that I often get is, well, well, Jesus, when he's using this Ganea statement over and over again in Matthew, he's always referring to his contemporaries. He's, he's talking to people they have to be included in the group. And I agree, they are in the group, but they're not the only people in the group. There's people who lived before them that were in the group, and there's people that will live after them in the group. If you talk to a member of a group, and you're talking to them as a group, you're not only talking about them, you're talking about everybody that's included in that group that's linked together by some quality. So all of those other interpretations, the first three up here on the slide, assume that Ganea is temporal in verse 34, and they have some good reasons for it. So just to remind ourselves, this is kind of a 
condensation of the entry for Ganea in BDAG. So the first uh, uh, semantic domain, they suggest a gloss of race or kind. The second domain, generation or contemporaries, and that's where most of the New Testament references are put by BDAG. But of course, it is begging the question because most of those references are from Jesus' statements in the Gospels. But they all suggest, suggest that it could be used for an age or for a family history. So Matthew appears to use Ganea in a temporal way in his opening genealogy. Although, and we can talk about this later, I'm not quite sure he's using it for the same time frame that we think of as a generation. But at least in his opening genealogy, he's using it in a temporal fashion. But Jesus also uses Ganea frequently in Matthew. So it's not just in 2434, but it's in 1116. It's four times in chapter 12. It's in 164, 1717, and 2336. So Ganea can refer to more than temporal contemporaries. So the, the standard online database uh, for ancient Greek, TLG, contains 8,483 instances of the word. We're not going to look at all of them today. We'll just look at a few, okay? Not only does the word occur frequently, but also has a wide range of meaning. So, for example, the new Brill Dictionary that just came out uh, divides Ganea into multiple semantic fields. And these are the glosses that they give. So first, they said it could be used for a race or a generation. It could be used for race, family descent, a breed, nations, tribes, kinds, classes, origin or birth, age, eon, historical period, a place of birth or even a nest, if you're talking about a bird, or the act of generation or procreation. So out of those nine, the ones like race, family, breed, nation, tribe, kind, and class, those are the ones that I'm calling qualitative uses of Ganea. So there's been various qualitative uses proposed, all right? So one more category, and then we'll get out of these category slides, okay? So if you agree with me that Ganea is being used in a qualitative sense and not a temporal sense, there's still four different ways that that could break down. So first of all, there's been believers, especially ancient believers, who argue that Jesus is referring to the company of believers. So what this Ganea, this group of people, has in common is that they are all believers. That's what he's referring to in Matthew's Gospel. The second actually argues the complete opposite. Don't you love that when you're comparing commentaries and they have complete opposite views? So there's been many throughout church history, including some names that we know well, who have argued that it refers to the company of unbelievers. So in both of these two categories, it would be a spiritual or an ethical quality that the people have in common or that they lack, all right? The, the second two, the last two, actually add a, an ethnic quality. So there's actually a familial relationship. So there's been people who have argued that it's the Jewish people viewed neutrally or positively. And finally, there's been some that have argued the opposite, that it's Jewish people viewed negatively in their unbelief or apostasy. And on those foot, on footnotes there, on pages four through five, I give you some examples. All right? So picking up at the top of page five, I'm going to argue for a variation of this last view, that Jesus is referring to the Jewish people viewed collectively as apostate, as unbelieving. I would suggest that it denotes the people of God who are unfaithful to God. So how will I do that? I'll seek to demonstrate that thesis in these lectures by showing, first of all, that qualitative uses of Ganea were common in ancient Greek literature, that this specific qualitative use of Ganea was used in Deuteronomy 32, which is the source of Jesus's generation sayings. Three, that this allusion to Deuteronomy 32 is part of a larger pattern in Matthew of portraying Jesus as the new Moses who will lead his people out of Israel and into their promised land under his theocratic rule. And that finally, this specific qualitative sense best fits the immediate context, that should be context, of Matthew 24, 34. All right? So we'll try to tackle the first two in this first lecture. We'll stop for lunch, and then we'll come back. We'll try to tackle three and four, all right? 
We have to do some heavy lifting to begin with because I am ultimately arguing that it's been mistranslated. So we're going to have to look a little bit about how this word was used in Greek literature. If you can get through that portion, even if it's not super interesting to you, we are going to get to Scripture because eventually we're going to look at Deuteronomy 32, which is the source of this saying. And then after lunch, we'll look at an intertextual argument and then finally the context of the Olivet Discourse. All right. So why does Jesus use Ganea? Why does he use this saying? In a nutshell, I'm arguing that he uses it because the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 used it. Okay? The Song of Moses was essentially the national anthem of the people. It was a song that they all knew well. You could just give them a little snippet of them, and I would suggest that they could think of the whole thing. And so it was an appropriate um, in a way for him to refer back to the story that that song told. All right, so picking up with that second paragraph, that Matthew 24, 34 contains an allusion to Deuteronomy 32 is not controversial. Many have noted the connection between that phrase in Matthew and Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. The song was, according to Deuteronomy 31, 19, given as a lasting witness to the people of Israel. However, this study will argue that the Ganea in Matthew is not just like the people, okay? So it's just not a typological or analogical relationship, but it is actually the same people. The same people addressed in the song are the same people that Jesus is addressing in his day, okay? Jesus also, just as Moses did, refers to Israel collectively as unfaithful or disobedient to her God. I'm not arguing that Jesus and Matthew never addresses his contemporaries as this generation. I am arguing that this generation, as it's commonly translated, is not limited to Jesus' contemporaries. If you address individuals as part of a group, your words are not necessarily limited to these individuals. Your, word, um, can also, your words can also apply to that group as a whole. All right? So echoing Remaris, Nolan argues that the alternative these qualitative senses proposed are artificial and they're based on the need to protect Jesus from error. Therefore, this presentation's burden is to demonstrate that its thesis is a natural rather than artificial reading of the text when the text is read in Matthew's historical cultural context. So yes, I do want to defeat the argument that Jesus was an error. That does matter to me, but I'm going to do it in a way that hopefully is not artificial a way that would have made sense in Matthew's historical context. I'll argue that the Old Testament story of a new exodus with its familiar characters and plot twists forms the backdrop for Matthew's all the discourse. In Deuteronomy, he promised that the same Ganea, which kindled God's wrath and deserved annihilation, would be vindicated and benefit from atonement. One day, Israel will no longer be viewed by God as a perverse and unfaithful nation but will instead be forgiven and restored. The adulterous Ganea will pass away into something better. Okay, so that's, that's where we're headed. That's what I'm gonna to try to argue. All right, so flipping the page here to six, we won't go through all these words because it would be dry as I drink some water. It would be dry. Instead, what I've tried to do is provide you with four charts so on the following pages, there's four charts that basically outline the results of a study that I did, okay? So out of, out of all of the 8,483 occurrences, thankfully, only 15% occur before the second century. And out of those 1,100, I selected certain ones, all right? So who did I select? So from the pre-classical period, I'll just summarize the first couple paragraphs there for you. Uh, the two writers, Homer and Hesiod, were used, just to kind of give us some background for how the word was used. From the classical period, so that would be the 5th century to the 4th century, I looked at three writers, Pindar, Herodotus, and Hippocrates. They used Ganea more than 20 times, so they're the three guys who use it the most during that period. We really want to focus in on, on the Septuagint and how the word was used in Matthew's day. Anytime we study a word, that's always the most important question. Not how it was used hundreds of years ago, but how was it used at your own time, okay? So out of, there's 239 uses of the word Ganea in the Septuagint. 
And by Septuagint, I'm including uh, what we would call the Apocrypha, the later Greek writings that are even closer to the time of, of Jesus, all right? But then in the post-classical period, probably the period that matters the most, so this would be the first century B.C. through the first century A.D., there were five writers who used Genea more than 20 times, plus I added Strabo, he has the famous geography that he wrote that was very influential, and then Clement of Rome, because he's an early Christian who wrote at the very end of the first century. So by including Strabo and Clement, we get everybody that used the word more than nine times. So that's a total of 320 times in those two centuries. So the grand total, if I did my math right, is on those tables, we have 697 occurrences listed on tables one through four. So you can go home, you can look all 697 up, but there are then those tables for you, okay? And I know somewhere you'll find a mistake that I made in there. But I think the easiest way to go through this next section and try to keep it interesting is just to look at the tables themselves, and then I'll talk briefly about them. So let's go to the one on page seven. So this is the table that shows Homer and Hesiod from the pre-classical period. The most common way that especially Homer uses um, Ganea is to refer to your lineage or your ancestry. So one way to think about this would be like a family tree. If you're on a family tree, you'd be thinking about everything that's below you, where you came from, okay? The, the line that you had sprung out of, so to speak. That's the most common way that he uses. So here's just a couple examples. This is probably one of the most famous lines in all of Homer's writings. I found this repeated over and over again by later Greek writers. They seem to have liked the story. There was the two men, Glaucus and Diomedes. They meet on battle. Uh, Diomedes asks Glaucus, where are you from? Uh, if you are a man, I'll fight you. But if you're an immortal, if you're a god, I don't really want to do battle with you. And so Glaucus responds to him, mighty son of Tidius, why ask me of my lineage? As is the generation of leaves, so also is that of men. So he actually uses Genea twice here in the very same passage. The first time he uses it in a qualitative sense. He's using it for lineage. The second time he's using it in probably a temporal sense. But the context makes that clear. The word was flexible enough that it could be used both ways, even in a very tight context. And then just a very a few lines later, Glaucus finally says, if then you would learn my descent, it is one that is well known to, to many. All right. So again, I tried to bold and underline the words there so you could follow along for you. But the first time it's standardly translated lineage, then it could switch to generation and be talking about how we as humans, our families, they just come and go. We're like grass, we're like leaves, we don't, we're not permanent. Kind of reminds us of a passage in 1 Peter, right? But he says, if you really want to know my descent, I'll tell you. This actually turns out well for Glaucus, because then he decides to recite his entire family history. Diomedes realizes that the families are friends, and they decide not to fight. This is the most common way that Homer uses the word. Another way to think of this word would be if you looked at the very bottom of that family tree. So the, the fat part of the tree, where your ultimate source came from. And this would be usually glossed as a race or a stock. Okay, we came from a certain city, or we all came from a certain person. Okay, so Nestor in one passage will say, question me concerning the race and lineage of all the Argives. So if you look at the Greek in the first line, you've got Ganea, and then you've got a word that's usually often uh, glossed as offspring or children, here it's lineage, okay? It could even be applied to non-humans. So Diomedes talks about some horses that are of the stock that great Zeus gave to Tross, all right? I'll try not to read too many of these, otherwise it'll sound like a Percy Jackson novel pretty quickly, but we'll move through these quickly, all right? So Ganea as offspring or children, all right? This is the third category, it's three times uh, in one passage, Hesiod says, do not beget children when you come back from an ill-omened burial, but after a festival of the gods, all right? So now he's looking upward on his family tree. So in the other two uses of Ganea, they're all family-related. You were looking downward at where you came from, 
Now you're looking at the branches that came out from you, okay? But again, it all has to do with your family connections, all right? One more from this category, it could also refer to your birth. So your status in birth, the order of your birth. So Achilles is of nobler birth than you are, but you are older than he. Or in another passage, one of the characters says, your birth, or your birthplace, we could say, was by the this certain lake, all right? So if you look at the, the chart one more time, table one, before we go away, those first one, two, three, four, five categories, those would all be qualitative uses of Ganea. The only one that we would say clearly are temporal would be the last category, those six. And in all of those instances, the context makes it clear. They're usually numbered first generation or second generation, or they have an adjective like the older generation or the former generation, all right? So if you were gonna argue that Ganea was commonly used for temporal uh, categories, you would at least be mistaken if we were talking about the pre-classical period, all right? Well, what about the next period? Let's, let's turn over and we'll look at uh, Pinder, Herodotus, and Hippocrates. Again, the most common way it's used is to refer to birth, all right? Right in the middle, number 35. That's slightly skewed, though, uh, because of Hippocrates', Hippocrates medical writings. So he'll often refer to people who've had a congenital defect or an illness, and he'll say they had it from birth. So he'll use the preposition ek, or of, or from, and then he'll use genea. So that's why there's so many. There's often uh, specific generations, but these are usually in Herodotus's writings. So if you look at that last category, generation, there's 23 of them, but they're almost all in Herodotus's histories where he's numbing, numbering things. It's more often the case that when things are not clearly designated as first, second, former, or older, that it has one of these older uh, or more familiar, familiar references, all right? Just to move along though, I wanna show this one because it was funny, all right? So this is from Plutarch. So we're skipping ahead and we're gonna look at one that's later in the example. Here he actually uses Ganea to talk about a type of frogs, all right? So the, it's translated by one author as when father frogs to watery snakes sweet food do croak and sing in mud a wretched brood, all right? I do wonder why the frogs are wretched, but I think the idea is because they're, they're food for snakes, right? These poor little creatures can't help themselves. They're gonna get gobbled up by snakes. Okay? So the writer refers to them as a wretched brood. Or Plutarch, remember Plutarch lives after the apostles. So this is late first century using the word Ganea. It could be translated as straight from the pond, the tadpole's father's cry, truly wretched race, the victuals of water snakes. You notice that the English translators are, in, are influenced by the desire to rhyme, okay? So their glosses are chosen, not necessarily because they're the best gloss, but sometimes because they are catchy in English or they rhyme. But it does illustrate that again, even into Plutarch's days, that this was used in other qualitative uh, instances, all right? All right, let's get to the Septuagint. We gotta get back to scripture eventually. No, enough Greek mythology. So table three, I'm just gonna put up a, an overview of the table, and then we'll go a little bit more in depth through some of these uses. Remember, it's used 239 times in our printed edition of the Septuagint. So the most common word, I'm picking up here on page eight, the most common word translated as Ganea in the Septuagint is the Hebrew door. This translation occurs 119 times. In these instances, Ganea is most often used to describe multiple generations extending into the future. All right, so this would be the first category up there on the screen behind me. So an indefinite future time period from the perspective of the speaker is indicated by the presence of one or more of the following. So how do you know it's being used this way? Well, because one of these things will be there. One, the duplication of the word genea. Two, the plural form of genea. Three, the use of an adjective such as palus or mini. Or four, the use of a temporal preposition, all right? It's like into the eternity or through many generations or something like that. In 10 places, genea refers to past generations. 
in order to convey a point to the reader about certain past events that affected their ancestors. For example, in Deuteronomy 32.7, which is going to be our key passage, the Israelites are encouraged to remember past days and consider years of generations of generations. And then that's also quoted again in the Odes. In Job 8.8, Bildad says, for inquire of an earlier generation. Isaiah 51.9 asks God to act like a generation of long ago. So these would seem to be referring to past time periods or past generations. In only 11 additional instances, can, be, can a good case be made that a specific generation is being referenced? The context indicates that the writer intends a temporal sense in all these cases. However, there are many instances in the Septuagint where Ganea clearly has a qualitative sense. For example, Ganea is used in a qualitative sense to describe a person's offspring or descendants. In these instances, Ganea often is the translation for the Hebrew word zarah, which can refer to seed, offspring, the state or act of descent. Ganea is also used in the Septuagint to translate um, yalid, a word that can refer to a son or a slave born in one's household or to one's descendants. For example, Numbers 12 or Numbers 13 twice refers to the descendants of Anak. Although the interpretation of the underlying Hebrew text is disputed, Isaiah 53.8, where Ganea translates door, likely refers to Jesus' lack of biological descendants, a condition remedied by his spiritual progeny. All right, so let's just stop and look at that. So another question that I commonly get, well, if, if door is the word that's most often uh, translated with Ganea, then we really should think about what the Hebrew word door means. You know, can door be used in these qualitative senses? And I would say it sometimes can. There are a few places where it clearly is referring to something other than your immediate temporaries or what we would call a generation. So I, I try to illustrate this here from Isaiah 53, 8 through 10, a very familiar passage from the Suffering Servant Songs. I got it here in the New Living Translation, just so we can trace the, the flow of the argument, and because I like their translation of Ganea, okay? So I'm just being upfront, that's why we chose it. But this is what it says. So I'll read it, the English translation, but you'll notice in brackets that I have the Greek from the Septuagint, and then in red, I have the Lexham English Septuagint translation, so we can follow along. This is what it says about our Lord. It says, he was unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants. There's our word, Ganea. That his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will see many descendants. It's a different Greek word there, but it's a synonym. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. So this is the, the believing remnant of Israel looking back from the perspective of how they had formerly viewed and thought of their Messiah. They thought of him as a covenant breaker. He died because he had done something wrong. And one particular thing that they could have pointed to is that he was a man in the prime of his life, approaching his 40s, and he dies without any children. No one carries on his family name. So he dies without descendants, and his life is cut short in midstream. But then it's reversed. So notice the parallelism at the end of the passage. He's given life, and he'll have many descendants, okay? Or as the Greek says, he'll live, he will see long-lived seed. And I give you a couple cross-references there from Dr. McCune's um, systematic theology, thinking about the Messiah's spiritual progeny. So the Messiah doesn't have children. He dies. It would have been viewed as a horrible tragedy and evidence that he's under God's curse. But appearances are deceiving, right? Because he actually will come to life. And by dying, he actually gains a large family for himself. He actually has many sons and daughters that he can bring into glory. So in that first uh, instance there of 
of descendants, I think we have a clear qualitative use not only of Dor, but also of Ganea. All right? One of the ways we can tell that the word is being used that way is because of the words around it. All right? We'll just stop and just talk a little bit about the concept of words having friends. Okay? In, in, in a technical way, we re refer to this as collocations. Okay? So you know the meaning of a word not by seeing it by itself, but by seeing it in conjunction with other words. Okay? If I said I was going to go buy a cone, that could mean lots of different things, right? But if I started talking about that cone that I was going to go buy, and then I started throwing in like highway or orange, you would know what I was talking about, right? But if I started throwing in words like chocolate or pistachio, it would have a completely different meaning to it, right? That's the idea of words having friends. Words never mean anything by themselves. Words only mean things when they're around other words. And the words are friendly with each other and they help each other have certain meanings, okay? That's what's happening here in this Isaiah 53 passage. Notice all the familial terms. You got descendant, you've got people, and then again, you have another synonym that means descendant. Here's another good illustration of this. So this is from the wisdom of Solomon. This is uh, from around the mid first century BC. The passage reads, but the children of adulterers will not reach maturity and the offspring of unlawful intercourse will perish. Even if they live long, they will be held of no account, and finally their old age will be without honor. If they die early, they will have no hope nor comfort on the day of decision, for the end of an unrighteous generation is grievous. So the first thing we notice is this is bad theology, okay? This is not Holy Scripture, okay? This is the one evidence of why we do not accept the Apocrypha as scriptural. But this is an example of mid-first century Greek, written only about 100 years before Matthew writes his gospel. And the reason why we know at the end that that probably shouldn't be translated as generation, it probably should be translated something like the children or the descendants, is because there's been other words earlier in the passage that had that meaning, okay? He used tekna and he used sperma. So he used other familial terms that help us realize that that's also what he means by Ganea. all right? All right, we'll, we'll read just a little bit more and we'll come back to this slide. So picking up in the middle of verse nine, in addition to the sense of offspring or seed, there are at least 12 instances in the Septuagint which refer to relatives, okay? So this would be looking down the family tree instead of up. So one example would be in Isaiah or Genesis 43.7 and Numbers 10.30, along with Numbers 13.22, which uh, were examined above as examples of Ganea used in the qualitative sense of the whole body of blood relations. So that's from Maroka's uh, lexicon. This use of Ganea is especially relevant to Matthew's 24.34, Hey Ganea Te because a large group descended from a common ancestor, not necessarily living contemporaneously, is described, okay? So this would be closest to what I, I'm suggesting is taking place in Matthew 24. It's a race or it's a group of people. So for example, in Genesis 43:7, Ganea translates moladet, all right? Which can refer to descendants or relatives. Joseph's brothers are relating to Jacob how the mysterious man in Egypt had questioned them regarding their relatives, okay? So they're not being asked about their generation or their contemporaries. They're being asked about your family back in Palestine. That's how the word is being used. In Numbers 10.30, Hobab states that he will return to his own family rather than accompanying Moses. And again, Ganea translates Moladet. To these passages, we could also add Genesis 31.3, which has another occurrence of that same Hebrew word and where God instructs Jacob to return to his relatives, all right? And we could go on and we could just continue to list out these different uses in the Septuagint. Before we flip this page, though, and, and or flip the topic and look specifically at Deuteronomy 32, I just want to give you one more example from Jeremiah 7 up here on the screen. I think this example is especially relevant because this is the temple speech that Jeremiah gives. Remember Jeremiah in this portion of the prophecy? He's telling the people, don't put confidence in the fact that you have a temple. 
Go back and remember what I did to Shiloh. I could destroy this temple just as much as I could have, or that I did destroy Shiloh. See how that would be very relevant for Matthew 24? Many people have noted the connections between Jesus' statements to the Pharisees in chapter 23 about their hypocrisy and Jeremiah's temple speech in Jeremiah 7. But in this, this temple speech, the end of chapter 7, beginning in verse 28 and running through 8.3, we have two uses of Ganea. And I would suggest at least three familial terms. So um, God says here through the prophet, this is the nation, it translates ethnos, that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the bare heights. For the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. And death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family. So notice it's mishpaha, it's a different Hebrew word, but it's also translated genea in the Septuagint. There remains in all the places to which I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. All right? But what about Deuteronomy 32? We have, to, we have to get there. So picking it up in the middle of page 10. So finally, in the Old Testament passage, most relevant to Matthew's use of Ganea, Deuteronomy 32, the word appears three times in the Septuagint. In all three instances, it translates door. In verse 7, we talked about it seems to have a temporal sense. And you can see that because of the repetition of the word door, or literally the generations and generations. In the other two instances, so verse 5 and verse 20, Ganea is being used to describe the people of Israel in an unfavorable light. And it's commonly agreed that these two verses serve as the backdrop of at least some, if not all, of Jesus' generation sayings in the book of Matthew. So in verse 5, the people of Israel are called a generation crooked and perverse. In verse 20, they're called a perverse generation. In unmistakable echoes, Matthew's gospel similarly, similarly refers to the rebellious Israelites of Jesus' day as, quote, this wicked generation, or this wicked and adulterous generation, or again, this unbelieving and perverse generation. So two factors indicate that this genea and the underlying door is used in these verses in a qualitative rather than temporal sense. Specifically, genea is used, as it is in Matthew 24, 34, to describe people who have both, one, a familial, and two, a moral connection, and three, do not necessarily live at the same time. All right? So those are the three qualities or characteristics that I think we should keep in mind. They have a family connection. They have a moral connection, they're all unbelieving or apostate, but they don't necessarily all live at the same time. It's a trans-temporal category that extends all the way from Sinai, I would suggest, until the second coming when God redeems them. So these are the arguments. First, the song in Deuteronomy 32 was not addressed solely to one generation, but was meant for the people of Israel through multiple generations. Moses gave this song to the people 40 years after the Exodus, while they waited in Moab to enter the Promised Land. The wilderness generation had died off, and the current generation was not in open rebellion to God. In fact, the current generation would have, had, would have the privilege of taking possession of Canaan. Still, God predicted that the nation would eventually turn to other gods after entering the Promised Land and fall under the covenant curses. Because of their unfaithfulness, the people God brought out of Egypt would return to Egypt in ships. And I think most of us are familiar with where Israel and Egypt lie geographically towards each other. You don't normally have to get to Egypt in ships. So I think this is a veiled way of referring to the fact that this is going to be a worldwide exile. It's Egypt plus. It's Egypt and other places. It's going to be a worse exile, and so it's going to require a greater exodus. All right. When this occurred, the song of chapter 32 would be a testimony against the people. When the song refers to things that occurred in distant generations, I think this is important, the song will refer to things that happened long time ago in distant generations, 
But the things that it describes that way are the things that just happened to their fathers in the Exodus. It's one clue that we're talking about people who are going to live far into the future. In other words, the song is written from the perspective of future Israelites, Israelites who could ask their fathers about the Exodus. Furthermore, the song is specifically said in 3129 to address a judgment that will come upon God's chosen people in days to come. While the point is debated, this phrase likely serves as a technical term in the Pentateuch for the eschaton. Even if this conclusion about in days to come is not accepted, and a definite future point is not intended, the phrase at least points to a distant uh, future and indicates that the song had a historical scope broader than Moses' contemporaries. In other words, since we are talking about people who live at points in history, there is a temporal aspect to the song's use of Ganea. But the Ganea in the song is not limited to one particular time. It's trans-temporal. Does that, does that make sense why I'm using the word trans-temporal? They live in time, so in a sense, there is a temporal element. But it's a broader temporal element than we would usually think of. It's, it's Sinai to Jesus' second coming. It's a huge group of people who have lived in many different times. The song addresses Israelites in Moses' day and future Israelites who will experience God's judgment at some distant time. Time is present, but time does not draw the boundaries. All right, I think I beat that one to death, so we'll go to the next paragraph. A second indication of the qualitative sense of Ganea in Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 20 is the familial language used throughout the song. In other words, Ganea does not merely describe people characterized by rebellion against God, but these are also people who have a familial connection to God. All right? So here I'm pushing back against those first two qualitative interpretations that didn't see any kind of Jewish quality or ethnic quality. I think that's a mistake in large part because of the way this is or the people are referred to here in this song. Okay? They're actually God's special people. He is their father. That makes their rebellion that much more odious. So the quality shared by the Skenea is not only perversion or corruption, but also the quality of having God as her father. Ganea then would have here in Deuteronomy 32 a sense which was common in Greek literature, a familial sense that as we have seen, Dor could also share. And the wording of the context makes this clear. All right, So let's look at some of the words that are the friends, the words that occur in this passage. In verse, or in verse 6 and 18, God is described as Israel's father who formed her. In verse 5, in a statement that's parallel to the crooked and perverse generation, Israel is called blemished children. In verse 20, in the parallel statement to the other use of Ganea, Israel is called sons who have no faith or faithfulness in them. These are God's special children who have rebelled, but this also means that he will not abandon them. After Israel has been punished, God will relent and avenge the blood of his sons. Notice all that familial language. So why do I think Ganea means a family or a group of people? Well, one of the reasons is because it's surrounded by lots of other familial terms. All right? The same nation that was punished will also be redeemed. This familial connection to God was not a unique to Moses' generation, but was shared by all Israelites. So because of its purpose as a lasting witness to the people of Israel, the song of Deuteronomy 32 would have been well known to Matthew's readers. The song's influence may be seen by later Old Testament passages that allude to it. So here especially, the journal article there, footnote 40 by Gunter, it was extremely helpful to me. He spends quite a bit of time showing how this song is used frequently all through the Old Testament. Hundreds, literally hundreds and hundreds of allusions and echoes to it, especially in the Old Testament prophets. And that would make sense if it essentially is their national anthem, if it was a song that was given to them to be sung throughout the centuries. All right? We would expect it to be quoted or referred to often. Additional evidence from Second Temple literature demonstrates that the Song of Moses was widely known and employed by authors preceding and roughly contemporaneous with Matthew. Thus, if the song was well known, and I'm, in, and I'm correct in saying that both Dor and Ganea in Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 20 are best understood as a reference to the entire nation, 
then Matthew's readers would have recognized Jesus' use of Deuteronomy 32 in the same way. All right? So that's my argument from, from the Septuagint. But quickly, what about the writers closer to the time of Matthew? We saw the one example, the frog one, okay? I had to put that one earlier just because I think it's funny. But there are many other instances. Just if we focus on Josephus. So if you flip to, uh, I think the easiest way to do this is go to uh, table four. And we look at all of these together. Out of the 320 uses of Ganea in the first century BC through the first century AD, these seven writers that I chart out here who use the word nine times or more, there's only 29 instances. So that specific generation slash time period, only 29 instances that would kind of approximate what some people are arguing is taking place in Matthew 24. It's far more common, far more common for them to use it in some familial way, okay? For example, Josephus refers to it as posterity, okay? So here he's, he's referring to Old Testament passages that we know well. In Antiquities 1, 183, he's referring to the promise that was made to Abraham. It says, and God promised that he should have a son and that his posterity would be very numerous insomuch that their number should be like the stars, okay? We know he's not talking about Abraham's generation, right? He's not talking about Abraham's contemporaries. He's talking about Abraham's offspring, okay? His posterity. He uses Ganea. Again, in 4.4, as, as if they were not all the posterity of Abraham, that God made him alone the author of all the knowledge we have. Perhaps another one. I didn't put this one on a slide, so I'll make you go back. I'm sorry about that. Let's go back to page 13, just because I wanted to point this one out. These are examples actually from the time of the Jewish war in the middle of that paragraph on page 13. So this is the last paragraph on page 13. I give you several examples from Josephus, but I just wanted to show you how it's often used with the sense of family, okay? So I'll pick up there. It says, for example, following the flood, Noah feasted with his family. When Jericho fell, Rahab was saved along with her family. At the massacre of Scythopolis, Simeon committed suicide, this is sad, after killing his own family. And then we're told that this family that he killed, it consisted of his wife, children, and aged parents. So there, by our use of the word generation, that would be like three levels, right? His parents, his wife, and children. That's how we would use the word generation. But that's not how Josephus is using the word. He's referring to that whole family, all three of those levels all together as a Ganea, okay? He goes on to say that when Titus's army enters the city finally, that they find whole families dead, all right? And we could go on and multiply these examples, all right? Are there any places in Josephus that would actually support the other side, all right? I want to show you this one here. This is from Wars 6408. So if I was debating the other side, right, if I was arguing against myself, and I'm thankful that I'm not today, right, because that would get confusing, this, I think, would be the best evidence for the other side. There's at least four instances in the Jewish wars um, where Josephus arguably is using Ganea in a temporal sense, okay? This is probably the best example. So again, he's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. And he says, had she, from her foundation, enjoyed an equal share of blessings, she would have been thought unquestionably enviable, a city undeserving, moreover, of these great misfortunes on any other ground, save that she produced a generation such as that, which caused her overthrow. So the key phrase there is a generation such as that. But I do wonder there if you couldn't still translate that as a nation. So is he just referring to these particular people alive right now and they're being held responsible for the fall of Jerusalem? Or is he speaking more widely of the nation as a whole? But either way, if we just put those four questionable ones together with all of his other references, this is what we get as a breakdown there on table four, all right? The specific generation uses, or what we could call the time frame uses, 
uses, how do we say that word? Uses? Uses only represent 9%, okay? The ones that are clearly qualitative, so there's no debate. He's referring to family, he's referring to children, he's referring to grandchildren, grandparents, all kinds of familial connections. 49%, almost half of all the instances, okay? It's clearly um, commonly used in the period directly surrounding the time of Matthew's writing in this qualitative sense. All right, let's try to wrap this all together then on page 16 and we'll break for lunch. So in his commentary on Isaiah, Mottier suggests that the noun door, when applied to people, suggests a group held together by some common factor. In other words, according to Mottier, a door can be visualized as a circle of people with the boundaries of those circles being drawn by various factors. Okay, so without getting into the arguments over the origin of the meaning door and whether that's even you know, derived from the idea of circle, it does provide an interesting illustration. Okay, Like door, the uses of Ganea shown in the above survey can, for the most part, be visualized as, visualized as circles of people and sometimes animals and things, even frogs, grouped by some common factor. So first, the most common way that Ganea was used, especially in the older Greek literature, was to describe a circle of people descended from a common ancestor, that is lineage. So if a contemporary person was in the circle with you, he was your relative or he was your kinsman. And there are many examples of Ganea being used in this manner. Of course, an entire nation, or what we might call a race, could be descended from one common ancestor, as was the case with Israel. And there are sufficient examples of Ganea being used in this broadest sense throughout the corpus of Greek literature. Furthermore, the context of Deuteronomy 32 indicates that this is the best way to understand its uses of Ganea. And we talked there about the collocations. Second, especially in later literature, Ganea was often used for offspring or children. If you refer to your children as a Ganea, and this happens often, you were saying that the circle of people shared having you as a parent. So you're what they all had in common. This is obviously related to the sense of lineage. Not entirely fitting neatly into the picture of circles are the various uses where the gloss birth is appropriate. However, if Ganea could refer to those who were generated, that is children, it was likely not a stretch to also use it for the place of generation, the order of generation, and the status or right gained by one's generation. And I'm trying to remind us at that point that our word generation hasn't always meant what we think it means today. Third, and particularly relevant for this work, in a few instances, the circle called the Ganea was sometimes not merely related to familial ties, but was also used to describe people, animals, or even inanimate objects, which could be grouped based on some other shared characteristic. For example, the male and female genders could be described as genai, right? So Philo has some interesting statements about how male and female genais should dress differently. This type of use is present in the Septuagint and the post-classical writers surveyed above. When genea was being used in this way, it was common to see modifying adjectives, which describe the characteristics that, that created the circle into which the members of the genea were assigned. Finally, Ganea was used to describe a circle of people living at roughly the same time. So each lineage or family tree could be examined in horizontal cross-sections, and these cross-sections could be counted. So I'm going back to my family tree analogy. You, know, you could look down the tree, you could look up the tree, and sometimes you could take slices out of the tree, and you could count those slices, and that would be approximating how we use the word generation today. But when the Greek writers did that, they made that very clear by the words around that. This study has demonstrated that Ganea into the second century AD had a wide range of meanings. Ganea was used of temporal contemporaries, but this was not its only meaning or its most common meaning. As always, context ultimately decides how a word is being used. The context of Deuteronomy 32 indicates that Ganea is best understood in a qualitative sense, which contains both familial and moral aspects. Israel had been brought into existence, generated by God, but in her rebellion would bring on herself the covenant curse 
that would require God to act to bring her out of exile. The next lecture will demonstrate that Matthew's readers would have been prepared by the time they got to 2434 to expect a reference to Israel's exile and subsequent new exodus. The same story also present in Deuteronomy 32.